We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. And we will start. My name is Titus Davis, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is March 15th, uh, 1995. I'm going to share in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. Go ahead, and we'll start from the, the very beginning. I'm kind of the impression that there's people that are kind of born with broken drinkers and then there's guys that kind of break the drinkers along the way and I think I was kind of born with a broken drinker I uh, always kind of felt different than my uh, peers I always never had the right clothes I uh, never had a I was raised a Jehovah Witness I had that going against me my father told me, Titus, because you're black, you're going to have to work twice as hard as everyone else. I just had all these reasons of feeling like unique and different. You know, I did whatever I, I could to kind of fit in. I, You know, once uh, I got a little job, I bought the clothes that uh, everyone else had so that I could kind of try to fit in. And still, there was something missing. I tried to hang out with the right set of guys. And once they accepted me, there was still kind of still something missing. Got my hair cut like everyone else. What I know was missing now is what we refer to in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous as a spiritual malady. I didn't know that then. So I tried whatever I could is uh, to kind of fix it. And the spiritual malady being a soul sickness, a social disorder, I'm a, a little bit different than, or I'm more sensitive to life, I should say, or I like to look at it like that. And things affect me probably a little bit more different than they would the average Joe. Anyway, long story longer, you know, growing up, like I said, I, I did whatever I could to kind of fit in. And so now I'm, I'm a teenager. So, you, you know, I'm going through those awkward teenage years. I'm talking back to my mom, telling her what I ain't going to do when I'm going to show up, all that kind of stuff. She had a stroke. It was sudden. And no one expected it. Like I said, uh, we were raised Jehovah Witness. So now my mom is on her, pretty much on her deathbed. The doctor said that uh, the only thing that was keeping her alive was the machine. The only thing keeping her alive was the machine. She, uh, was to take off of nothing we could do, you know? Um, so now the doctor said, say something to her. She could probably still hear you. And, and so my mom is laying on her deathbed. And uh, and what do you say to your mom when you've been addicted the entire time? Right? Also, I remember it was just a long day. It was a long day. And uh, we took her off the machine. That was her wish. And I remember going home and hanging out with my cousins and a couple of my friends who uh, all were uh, uh, there doing the best they could to console me. My cousin had just started working at a Rouse. Like I said, I was around 16 at this time. 
And uh, he was a little bit older than me, about a year and some change older than me. And he, he would always just kind of like boost like um, comic books. And so now uh, he's starting to boost liquor. And he bought out a bottle of some Southern Comfort. And he bought the Southern Comfort out and he poured us each a shot. And I'll never forget, he said, be careful. This stuff is going to make you dizzy. And uh, he poured us a shot. remember taking a swig of it. And immediately I got that feeling that I was going to grow to love. I remember asking him to hold some, hold it uh, for me. I didn't want to get drunk that day. I knew my father would know if I was drunk. I knew my father would know if I was drunk. And uh, I didn't want him to find out. Didn't get drunk that day. Um, but I remembered the way that stuff made me feel. I swore the next time I got uh, a chance, I was going to drink. I swore I would, I would, I would have a chance uh, I was going to drink again. Next time I'm hanging out with my cousins, and, and by this time, like I said, I, you know, I had gotten used to telling people whatever I thought they wanted to hear, uh, so that uh, they would like me. And my cousins asked me, "Hey, do you drink?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I, I do it all the time." And uh, they said, "All right, we're going to get a couple of forties." We got a couple forties, and they handed me the the, the brew, and uh, I started to uh, crack the bottle open, and I started to sip the the, the alcohol, and uh, Nope, they said you're drinking it wrong. They said, we want you to tilt the bottle up and we want to see the bubbles come out. And I did exactly uh, what they asked me to do, kind of like a sponsor asked me to do the steps. A couple minutes later, they're like, Titus, I'm kind of buzzed. Are you buzzed? And I'm like, I told you, I do this all the time. And five minutes after that, I was drunk. And I knew from that day uh, to the day I died, I was always, always supposed to feel like that. It didn't matter to the color of my skin, the clothes I had on, I liked the effects produced by alcohol. And uh, I, it was kind of balls to the wall at that point. I just, I, I drank uh, hard and heavy all the time. I started working a little job at selling the newspaper and uh, I would show up there loaded all the time. No one really cared as long as I performed well. And every now and then they would give me guff like, like, uh, you always come to work high, or why are your eyes so red? And somebody would say, his eyes are always red. And I'm like, no, not that red. And I remember thinking, like, I don't, I don't have to put up with this. You know, I, I, I had a buddy of mine who was uh, selling dope, and I figured, I'll, I'll just do that, you know? So I uh, quit that job. I asked my homeboy to, to front me a sack, and he did. And he showed me how to cut the dope up, kind of like a, a sponsor shows you how to do the steps. The first time I tried to sell dope, I got popped and I got arrested. I just turned 18 and I went to jail at Long Beach City Jail. And, you know, up until that point, all I had ever heard was stories about jail. I went with a big homie of mine. I walked in there and, and a bunch of my friends were in that place. My, my homeboy was like, they had the, uh, the toilet was in the middle of the community, the cell and, uh, an aluminum rim. And I remember him taking a dump on it, right? And uh, and him saying, you have to get used to it. Like I said, I was young. I was 18. Only ever heard stories about jail. And I'm thinking, I ain't pulling my pants down in this place, you know? And uh, like, no, I'm not. And uh, I didn't take a dump for three days in that joint. <laughs> and uh, I went to court and the judge said, you, you promised to come back? And I was like, yeah, whatever. And, uh, and he released me on, on OR. Uh, he, he said, just uh, 
he said, just uh, do this uh, drug diversion thing, and uh, and you're, you'll be good to go. And I, I you know, I, I I bided my time on that for a while, uh, and then I went to one of those drug diversion classes, and they had like a, a long table set up with a bunch of people around it, and a counselor lady at the beginning. And uh, you know, I'm just kind of taking it all in. And uh, she starts the, the the group, and she asked her. She says, "Everyone, just kind of tell why you're here." So she goes to the first guy, and she says, "So and so, why are you here?" And he says, "I'm here because, you know, I, I do uh, dope in the in the house when my kids are in the other room, and I feel really, really bad." And I remember when he said that, my my dad had it like um, a, was smoking crack. He smoked crack like a, a broke stove at that time, and. Uh, I remember thinking, like, this would be great for my dad, but it ain't for me. I don't, I don't do this stuff, you know? And then she went on to the next lady, and and uh, she said, so-and-so, why are you here? And, and the girl said, I, I get high, and I do things a lady shouldn't do. And I remember thinking, like, I, well, it don't apply to me. I'm not a chick, you know? And uh, I just kind of disregarded everything everyone said as they went around the room. And and, and the last the last person she, she said was, like, some little skater dude. Um, this is back in the day when black people didn't skateboard and, and, uh, she said, uh, he said, all I do is drink and smoke weed. And that's all I ever did. I remember thinking, well, he's just weak, you know, you don't get addicted to weed. And, uh, I did a beeline out of that thing. And, uh, and I, and I didn't look back. I just kind of, uh, continued to do my own thing. And I still had that court thing hanging over my head. And at the advice of my father, who, like I said, was, uh, uh, you know, had alcoholism and was in and out of jails and prison because of his addiction. Um, he said, you better tell the judge uh, you want to do a, a living treatment center. Otherwise, you're going to do like two years in jail. And uh, that did not appeal to me at all. So I went and told the judge I, I wanted to get in a living treatment center. And he said, that's fine. Just bring me back like uh, six months of paperwork. And I was like, OK, so. I, you know, I kind of, you know, did my thing for a little while longer. I did my thing for a little while longer and, and I still had that court thing hanging over my head. So I, one of my runs, uh, I didn't have anywhere to go. I came home and they, the agreement was like, uh, by this time they were like not letting me in the house. Uh, and they said, uh, you, you can only sleep here if you call these places in the morning. And I had to do it for the court. So I said, okay. And, uh, I ended up calling a place. Um, called Redgate Memorial Detox in Long Beach. And, uh, you know, um, and I checked in there, what we like to describe is uh, slick, hip, and sick. You know, I was 19 years old. You know, I, I, I didn't have alcoholism. I, I wasn't like, I was just going to do my little thing to get the courts off my back. And then uh, I was going to do what I like to do. That's what everyone I hung out with in my neighborhood did, was drink and smoke weed. I didn't see anything wrong with it. And I just kind of sat in there and uh, disregarded all the stuff. I saw the steps and the traditions on the wall and, and every word, was, was, other word was God. And I wasn't on good terms because how can a, a God take my mom away from me when I, when I was 16? And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I, I thought I was cultish and I, I wasn't going to do it. And what happened for me is I believe what happens for most guys in, in Alcoholics Anonymous is, uh, um, they brought in panels into that place and those guys shared their story. And uh, I never listened to it really um, because like I said, I was an alcoholic, but the fog had lifted just enough 
And I remember this guy coming in and, and, uh, and I like to describe the way he looked because there was no way I should have identified him with him at that time. He was overweight, white guy. He had like a, 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 a full beard. He was in a wheelchair. And uh, he said, uh, and he identified as alcoholic. And he said, I employ you to look for the similarities and not the differences. And I don't know why I heard that, but I did. And then he went on to describe the way he got drunk. He said, I'm the type of alcoholic. He says, I'm on the streets at like three in the morning and I don't have anywhere to go. He said, I'm the type of alcoholic where I'm in holes in the bottom of my shoes. He said, I defecate in alleys and I sleep in laundry rooms. He said, if you get drunk like me, you just might be an alcoholic. And unbeknownst to like him or anyone else, I had done everything he had just mentioned. Uh, I was shot out over alcohol, a beverage, some shit you can get legally. And uh, that's that's when I caught alcoholism. I didn't have it when he started talking, but after he finished, I contracted this disease, man. And I knew that uh, for me was to continue on the way I was going was going to mean more of the same. And uh, Red Gate at that time, well, well um, uh, they were they were, you know they they didn't really care about your feelings back then. Um, they said uh, they, they were really good at saying uh, you can always tell an alcoholic. Um, because you can't tell them shit. And uh, they said, it's a program of suggestion. They said, you could take it or leave it. They said, we really don't even care. They said, you can continue doing the things you've been doing and get the things you've been getting, or you could try something different. And that appealed to me. It wasn't like they were trying to force me into this thing. They just kind of said, it's here for the taking if it's what you want. And uh, they said, your problem is not stopping. They said, you stop every time you run out of money. They said, you need to learn how to stop starting. And uh, that's precisely what Alcoholics Anonymous has shown me how to do, how to kind of put the plug in the jug, so to speak. And, uh, you know, um, that was, like I said, uh, March 15th of uh, 95, and I've been sober um, 26 years in a in in straight line. And uh, um, I got a relatively good life because of uh, ANA, you know, like uh, there's been like uh, some crazy moments in there. It's a lot of days. You know, when you get sober young, people always come up to you and tell you, oh, you're, you're so smart for getting this thing at such a young age. And um, after a, a little while, I started to believe it. I started to think, like, maybe maybe I am a little quicker than the average guy. And, and uh, maybe I don't have to be at meetings all the time. And, uh, like, slowly but surely, I kind of, like, just kind of curtailed back off my meetings. And, uh, you know, when I'm not around the ANA, I, I don't I don't have any principles. I'm selfish and self-centered. I'm only thinking about me. And uh, I, I just act a fool. I started trying to sell drugs sober, right? I'm lying at work, stealing from my job. I got a girl that I, I promised I'm going to be monogamous with. And, and, uh, and now I'm, like, cheating. And, and uh, you know, I, I just am a mess. You know, all that stuff came to a head and she saw who I was and, and I couldn't keep up with all the lies. And, and uh, I'm I'm sober, but I'm dying of alcoholism and uh, stone cold sober. And, uh, you know, I was like about eight years sober. I'm, I, I want to drink. And I know what happens to me when I when I drink. I live literally like an animal. And, and the thought of a drink is, is starting to appeal to me. You know, I get out of there, that relationship. I end up in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and I don't want to be there. I don't want nobody to come up to me and hug me or 
or asked me if I got a sponsor or what stuff. Cause I, you know, when I got sober, it was like pretty much one of those, those book groups. I, I, I know the book back and, and forward and, you know what I mean? I, I'm, I'm, I got better sobriety than anybody in that room. So I think, you know, so I, I, I found this place is the round table and, and, and you, you can die there benignly. Like nobody's going to come and hug you or shake your hand. They just kind of let you sit and drink the coffee and you listen to their old raggedy stories. And, and uh, that's what I did. And I would sit and you know, I would judge everybody there. And uh, I would think hey, their problem is shot out. And they ain't never going to make it. And, and, I'm, and every day I want to drink. One day this guy got up there and he just started uh, talking about like um, like all cheap wine, the stuff I like, like Night Train and, and Whiteport and Thunderbird. And, and uh, he's telling like, like a story and everybody's laughing. And, and I look around the room and, and I think like, you know, these guys are all comfortable in their own skin and I'm not. And I got a better program than all of them. And uh, that's when it kind of hit me, you know. Um, I got, I went from that meeting to another, I met my sponsor and uh, he asked me to go to some of the meetings he went to. I was in a meeting and a girl stood up and, and she shared that she had 14 years at that time and, and, uh, and that it was a miracle. She got sober young and she had got away from Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, and she said what she did to get back in, involved. She said, I started going to meetings. I got back in the process. She said, I started to become a service. And I knew she knew how I felt. And uh, so after the meeting, I went up and I, and I talked to her. And she told me exactly the things she did and how she got H&I panels and how she went to a uh, 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 volunteer at central office. And uh, uh, I did that. I did all that stuff she did. And uh just because out of fear I was going to drink, I, I knew I was close to a drink and uh, I, I, I didn't want to get loaded. Uh, so I started to do that, that, that stuff. And, and uh, slowly but surely, I, I started to feel better. I didn't I didn't feel like I wanted to drink. And I've developed a fellowship, uh, a bunch of guys in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous in, in Long Beach, uh, carted me around the meetings and, and, and then it kind of hit me. A has always been there for me, right? Whenever I needed it, uh, that place was there. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a big deal for me today, uh, to know that, that the rooms are open, right? That there's somebody going to be there when, when they say, so when the guy comes, it doesn't know how not to drink when he's exhausted every other option, right? When, when the treatment hasn't worked and therapist hasn't worked, uh, their family can't keep him sober, his wife, the job, none of that stuff can keep him sober. And somebody says, I don't know what to tell you, man. You better go in and check out those A&A people. And, and uh, he comes to us uh, broke down, busted and disgusted. And, and we say, keep coming back. You know, there's no referrals from Alcoholics Anonymous. It's what we refer to as the last house on, on the block. We're not going to send you anywhere else. Right. And uh, and we watch this guy or a woman like we build their lives right uh, from 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 the ashes. They rise and uh, and they get to be happy, productive members of society. And and that's what's happened for me. You know, um, I'm the oldest of four. So, you know, I would like, you know, trick my little brothers and, and lie to them and borrow money that I was never going to pay back. And, 
And as I got old, they didn't want my one under me. He didn't want nothing to do with me. He would tell people, you know, I have family. And that's because of the way I acted, right? And then even sober for a long time, I was aware though. And them guys, they just didn't want me around. And my sponsor, I started going to these family reunions. They, they were coming up and I didn't want to go there. My family would be like, I oh, you staying out of church. They were just good at pushing my buttons, which when they, they, they were, uh, they put them there. So they knew where they were at, you know, um, so uh, I didn't want to go. My sponsor would say, just stay there like uh, 10 minutes and then you can leave. And I, I did that. I would set my clock and at 10 minutes I would leave. And I, and I did that over and over again. And my sister would be like, oh, you're going to stay longer than 10 minutes? And I'd be I don't know. Now they want me around. That brother that hated me um, has a, a now a nine-year-old and he wants me to be in his life. Where he couldn't trust me before. The only thing you could trust that I do was drink. And I took that little kid to his first Laker game the other day. That's the stuff beyond my wildest dreams. The stuff they talked about that I didn't understand or comprehend. Right? That little kid holds me and and, uh, and is excited to see me and says, Uncle Titus, when I show up. And, and uh, he has another little one. My baby brother has a kid who's two and he and he gets super excited they want me around i, I got a, a, a good deal because of uh alcoholics anonymous i'm overpaid and so now i'm indebted to talk Alcoholics anonymous whenever i'm asked to, or called upon to be a service i don't get to say no because this thing saved my life right and uh, i i gotta show up uh, regardless um we we scheduled this um for a couple of days and and uh and truth be told i i completely forgot until you just called me then i gotta stop everything and do it you know because um you guys have taught me about commitments and doing holding my mind holding up my end of the bargain and doing what i said i was going to do uh and be, and because of that doing those esteemable things i i i i get self-esteem i mean uh, i i got a, a good deal today you know I, I, that's about all i got so uh which i know i'm like about 10 minutes short it looks like um but uh okay. thanks for listening to my story <clears throat> thank you i will ask you a You're few welcome. questions if you have some more time yeah yeah for sure okay so i want to thank you for your story i love the picture of like the image of you and your nephew at a lakers game <laughs> that was really sweet and to what your life looks like today for the newcomer, perhaps the young newcomer like you were, uh, and them looking at sobriety and a whole life of being sober and assuming that that's a boring life. Can you elaborate on how life and sobriety is not boring and what it looks like today, like your example of the Lakers game? Um. So, yeah, I, I, I did. I thought like... um you know, I wasn't going to have any fun in sobriety. And, uh, you know, I got sober before I was even legal, before I even took the legal drink. So one thing that that was kind of helpful is like, you can't miss what you never had. So I've never been to a bar, I to a club. Um, but they would assure me, uh, guys in Alcoholics Anonymous said, you can go anywhere, any other free man can go. Uh, provided you're spiritually fit. And they say, you know, when you're not spiritually fit, and if you got to be at those places, right, make sure you bring something to the party, right? 
make sure that you're you're okay and comfortable. If you don't feel like you should be there, don't go, right? Um, and if you if it's a sketchy place, take somebody with you. So I've gotten to go to like concerts and uh, I've gotten to travel. Um, uh, uh, all, all all because of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and with members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's hard to tell a bunch of drunks they can't have fun, right? So all these guys are sober, are crazy, and, and uh, they do all kind of goofy stuff, even sober. So it, it, it's been a, it's been a, a fun experience for me. I I, I have never. I had a shortage of things to do in the ANA. That makes me laugh. It's hard to tell a bunch of drunks not to have fun. And it's so true. It's so true. Um, so you said a few times, did did you say NA or AA or or do you combine I said them? AA. I say AA and then I often say A and A. Oh, okay. So that's what I was hearing. A and A. So what is A and A? That's Alcoholics Anonymous. Oh, it's just a you making and shit a. up? <laughs> you know, A and A, Alpha Alpha. All right, all right. So you are making shit up. Okay, just confirm that. Okay. <laughs> what is your relationship with your higher power? You mentioned Jehovah Witness and losing your mom at such a young age. What does it look like today? So, um, I had like a that was a a. a an issue for me when I, when I got sober was like the God thing, you know? Um, so I, I had to, uh, kind of come to terms with that. I remember hearing guys in meetings talk about their gods. And I would borrow that. I remember I was at a speaker meeting and, and this dude, he was, uh, um, he talked about his God was a gangster. So I remember I, I would, I would, I would imagine my God in a, an all black khaki suit. And then I would think about him shooting and doing drive-bys, and I'd be like, nah, "I gotta get a new guy." <laughs> or, or, or I would be in the meeting, and my uh, this girl would say, uh, "Oh my God, you can use my God if you don't have one." And I would borrow her God, and I would think about my God throwing flower petals, and I'd be like, "Nah, that's not gonna work." And, um, so I, I kind of settled on on the group. Uh, the group of Alcoholics Anonymous, they, they were, those guys were staying sober uh, a day at a time, which is something I could never do. And, uh, and uh, I had been sober through holidays. And like I mentioned, those family reunions, just hanging out with those guys, like just just hanging out with sober longer than I ever thought was even possible. Through, through Thanksgiving, I remember my first Thanksgiving, looking around and seeing my sponsor and a sponsor I had before that and thinking like, man, I can't believe I'm just off of the strength of being with them. I'm in sober. So I've settled on the group and it's kind of like evolved, if you will, if God can evolve into like nature. Um, I kind of like the idea of law of nature and gravity and you, 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 you know, it's, it's always there. You, it's always there. And, uh, and then we have a give and take relationship with it. And I have a give and take relationship with my community, right? Um, where, where I, I'm a worker among workers, so to speak, or a friend among friends. Uh, and I'm able to live a productive life by doing that, by being a service. I, I'm fulfilled. I don't feel like I need to put anything inside me. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net. <laughs>